It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams. And I am so happy that you made it to class this morning because today we're going to have a very crucial, timely conversation about the fight for abortion access and reproductive rights. Now, wait, 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 wait. I know what you're going to do. You're going to turn the channel. You like Joy. I done heard. We done. We talk about this. They talk about it on MSNBC. They're talking about it on CNN. It's in my news. It's all over the place. I'm tired of talking about it. I know it's nothing we can do about it because the Supreme Court and the Republicans and the Democrats ain't doing and all this other kind of stuff. And I know you're tired of it. Believe me. <laughs> There's so many articles and protests and GoFundMes and everything. You get to a point where you kind of disconnect because it's like, what do I do? I can't do anything about it. Or you may live in a state and saying it doesn't impact me. I don't know what we can really do. So I thought I would have a different discussion this morning, instead of bringing just a whole bunch of activists or a whole bunch of other different organizations that are saying the same talking points over and over again, I thought that I would get some state lawmakers together and talk about how things are playing out in the states. Because as you know, we still live in a state's rights <laughs> situation. And so a lot of these battles are happening in the states. And so this morning, we're going to be joined by state lawmakers who are championing reproductive rights in their respective states. They're battling against ongoing restrictive efforts that are happening in their states, but they also may have some lessons, some tasks or something so that we don't have to feel like there's nothing that we can do, that there's so many fights on different fronts that we can't possibly be back against this monstrosity that has been decades in the making. So I have some wonderful state lawmakers that I'm going to bring to the front of the class and all of them, this is their first time here. So let's clap it up for them. <laughs> the first one I want to bring to the front of the class is Rep. Ruth Richardson. Now, all of the ladies that I'm bringing to the front of the class are, I mean, I could read whole pages of their bios because they are dynamic. Rep. Richardson is, I think she's in her third term or maybe fourth term at the Minnesota House of Representatives. And she made history as being the first Black woman to represent her district in the Minnesota House. She authored like 18 bills her first year, including there was a resolution on making I believe it was racism, making it a public health crisis. So welcome to the front of the class for the first time, Rep. Ruth Richardson. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Jennifer Driver. She is the Senior Director of Reproductive Rights of Six. She leads a cross-state organization that is helping to preserve and expand <laughs> reproductive rights because, you know, abortion access ain't the beginning and the end. <laughs> and she has nearly 15 years experience in this field. Welcome to the front of the class, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And 
Also, doing double duty, because that's what we do, is Representative Zakia Summers, who's like having an interview and in a hearing at the same time. I don't know. But she's serving her first term as Mississippi State Representative for House District 68. And I am so glad that she is leading the fight in Mississippi, because there's a lot of shenanigans going on in Mississippi. But that's where our people are, right? You know, look at the top, you know, states and where Black people are. Mississippi is up there. Hey, Representative Summers. Indeed it is. And it is a great day to be in the city of Jackson and in the state of Mississippi. And I'm happy to be with all of you today. Wonderful. Starting with you, Representative Summers, if you can share with us the story of your first civic action. Yes, absolutely. So I think that I was a born activist. I can recall my time when I was in high school and I went to the Jim Hill High School here in Jackson, Mississippi. And I always knew that I wanted to be a journalist. So I was preparing myself to step into that career. And I became editor of my high school newspaper. Well, during that time, we would always go to the local Taco Bell after our football games. And we would gather there in the parking lot, grab our tacos, have a good time. You know, normal activity, what young people do. Not doing anything illegal, just having a great time. And we were accosted by some of the police officers. And one of my classmates particularly was mistreated. And so I took it upon myself to report on the issue in my high school newspaper. And then I took it a step further, met with the principal, and then met with the commander for that precinct. And through that engagement, through that activism, the police department decided to give us a break and to allow us to gather there and do what we were doing before and have a good time. And that was really my initial activism step. And of course, that led into me kind of being the advocate for the underdog for the rest of my professional and personal career. And then, you know, obviously led me into now being in the state house as a state representative where I continue my fight for the people. I love it because look how important like the... Pre- <laughs> like the power of the pen is, right? It's like this happens and then I'm going to go write about it. That's going to create more attention in order to sink some changes. Love that story. What about you, Jennifer? Sure. Thanks. I love this question. You know, for me, I actually didn't think that this was going to be the space that I would land. I didn't go to school and think that I was going to start fighting for repro rights across the country. I actually thought I was going to work for ESPN. And so what happened when I was an undergrad, I'm from Alabama, born and raised. My entire family still lives in Birmingham, but I had gone to school in Tuscaloosa and there were several clinics that were primarily in black communities in Tuscaloosa. And at the time they were either closing the clinics or going to restrict the hours. So they were restricting the hours between 10 and three when most people are at work. And so you couldn't actually go and use and use the clinics that were supposed to be in your neighborhood and, and provide you health care. And that really angered me. I was really frustrated that they were going to close the clinics in this neighborhood and not the, the, the clinics across the river. And so what we did was we organized in the community, put people together, let them know what the clinic actually does for the community that was in Tuscaloosa, met with some of the leaders in Tuscaloosa. We didn't actually get to keep all of the clinics open, but we were able to to save one clinic. And then it raised my attention to the other fights that were happening across Alabama. So Alabama at the time had one of the highest HIV 
rates in the nation, but weren't calling attention to it. And it was largely impacting black and brown folks in the state. And so I kind of fell into activism from there, getting involved with other community events. And so here I am. Wonderful. Thank you so much. What about you, Representative Richardson? So my origin story goes back to late elementary school and remembering coming home after having this assignment around sharing birth stories. And I had heard some of my friends' birth stories and they had these joyful birth stories. So I I, I went home to hear from my mom about her birth stories. I have seven brothers and sisters. She grew up in segregated Mississippi, but was also the granddaughter of a midwife. And so she told me the story of giving birth, having a traditional Black midwife and what that was like versus what it was like laboring in a segregated hospital in Mississippi. And the stories of pain and trauma that she told me, I remember thinking, I'm sorry that you were treated so poorly in this situation, thinking of it as one person doing something really bad to her. And she was like, no, this is the way we all were treated. This is the way my sisters were treated, your aunts were treated. And so it was then very early on that I started speaking speaking out about the tale of two cities in terms of the disparities that we see among birthing stories. I didn't know words like the social determinants of health or, you know, health equity or maternal mortality for that either. But what I knew was the story that she told me was something that didn't have to be that way. And so that really was the spark for this. And I never really knew that I was going to get into politics. So I oftentimes refer to myself as the accident dental politician, because there was no strategic plan or straight line that got me to this point. It was really walking in purpose. I actually love the fact that a number of you are mentioning how, you know, this wasn't an original plan. It's not like you looked at yourself in the mirror and was like, I'm going to be a representative here. Because that is such the normal story as, you know, particularly for women running and candidates from different backgrounds is that they see an issue they want to address, realize that there is policy law or politics involved in or in actually getting it done. And then, you know, are asked by community, are asked by others to sort of jump in and make it right. And so all of you sort of have some of the similar stories of women across the country who make that choice to jump in. And I also, you know, love the birthing stories, right? And how, like you said, we may not know the language. And a lot of people in our communities, they don't know the language that we use, the jargon that we use in the policy space or the political space, but they know what our communities need. They know, like, and we can say the same thing for young people, right? They may not know what the budget is, but we know y'all got money for something because it ain't coming here, but I see where it's going (laughs) and it ain't in my school, right? And so to really lean into that fact that communities and people in general know what people need, know what communities need. They don't have all of the jargon for the nonprofit industrial complex to get the grant, but they know exactly what needs to be done. So I want to get into this conversation in the States and in the fight for reproductive rights. We're going to take a quick break. And then I want to talk about some of the significant challenges that all of you are facing in your respective state, but then also like what are the opportunities in this moment 
for us to really chart a new course. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back with more Sunday Civics. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are talking about reproductive justice, particularly on the state level, what's happening and not only what the challenges are, but what the opportunities are in order to chart a new course for people to have control over their own bodies and reproductive systems. You know, people have so many different arguments about, you know, whether they're pro-life, pro-abortion, anti-this, whatever. But at the basic level, it is people having control over their own reproductive Future. And Jennifer, if, if like, is there some other complication that I'm missing here? It's not complicated. I think the vast majority of people can understand that you should be able to decide if and when you want to be pregnant, how you, that you should be able to parent and be able to parent in safe and stable communities. And that at the crux is what reproductive justice is and what we're all fighting for in these states. Yeah, because I sometimes just oppose looking at old news stories of people talking about, you know, I should be able to control my own destiny. I own my property. I can do what I want with it, like all this other stuff. And I'm like, did this not belong to me? <laughs> like, am I like, does my body not belong to me, uh, Representative Summers? Like, can I not control what my body is able to do? Absolutely. And, you know, it's particularly disingenuous when we hear these arguments about women not having the autonomy over their own body or even, you know, talking about if you don't vote, then that right is taken away from you. Right. It's like all of these things that seem to thread through the fabric of marginalizing already marginalized communities. But then when it comes to, you know, big business, big corporations, or even, you know, these huge lobbying agencies like the NRA, you know, National Rifle Association, others, you know, we can pour money into that, but we can't put the proper investment into the systems and areas that we know that are proven according to the data that shows will help people, will help women, will help children, families, and communities. You know, in Mississippi, our households are led by majority Black women. You know, they are taking care of the families in the state of Mississippi. But for, you know, all kinds of reasons and circumstances, we find excuses to not want to support them, but find ways to diminish them and to try to control them. And, you know, that's not the way that we should be moving. We talk about why it's important that we create an environment that people want to live, you know, want to remain in the state of Mississippi and and thrive. Then we should be putting those systems in place that help to support that. Representative Richardson and continuing in that same vein. Right. There are a number of those cases or companies that Representative Summers are mentioning Right. You know, it's a big Supreme Court case that said corporations are people. They have control. They have a voice. They have the ability to control their own destiny. Right. We got the early founding of the country, you know, people wanting to have say so over their property and over how much they're taxed and, you know, who has authority over them. But yet there is some disconnect of a actual human being that being in the in the, in the space of a woman who not being able to have that same control 
you know, I have the theory that it's connected to women still being seen as property and, <laughs> you know, all of that. But, you know, maybe my tinfoil hat is a little higher than necessary. You know, this comes down to one basic thing. It is all about trying to control and trying to continue a legacy of control. Because as we think about the ways in particular that Black women have been treated and viewed in this country since inception, and just thinking about how our reproductive health was this whole center of control, right? So when the slave trade was banned, the only way that you were going to be able to ensure that there was a sufficient population to continue the free labor was to ensure that Black women were continuing to have children. That was control. It was control for capital, control for profit. And the unfortunate thing is, as much as things have changed, there are some things that have stayed exactly the same. And this desire to control remains today. And I think that also what comes with this idea around control is also manufactured confusion as a way to also control. Because with a patchwork quilt of laws, it creates confusion for people to even understand what is available to them and what their rights are. But at the base level of all of this, it is definitely about control. Yeah. Jennifer, Representative Richardson brings up a great point. We're seeing, as I said in the beginning, news story after news story. This lawsuit is pending. This legislative body is restricting this. They're restricting medication. They're restricting time. You need approval from this. Doctors can't do this. And it does create an atmosphere of confusion and fear, right? Which I think is part of the plan, <laughs> you know, right, is to create this confusion and fear that people don't really know where to turn. They just know that we're trying to restrict it overall. You know, if somebody is in Mississippi, in, you know, Montana, in New York even, what are people to follow? What are people to know about what is happening on the access to abortion issue when there's so much confusion in the media space, but then also state legislatures are doing so many different attempts at bans or things of that nature. Like, what is a normal person listening is supposed to do with this? I mean, I think you're right that the whole idea was about control and, and confusion. Even before Roe v. Wade was overturned through the Dobbs v. Jackson decision out of Mississippi at the Supreme Court, Roe was actually never enough for a majority of folks. A lot of people who were living in these states had access to abortion in name only, but not actually had access. And so we knew that. A lot of folks said, well, Roe will never be overturned. And then it was, right? And then we started to think, okay, well, what are the next steps? What happened that actually even before we got to the Dobbs decision, you hear a lot of anti-abortion politicians talk about, well, it's the will of the people, it's what the people want. And time and time again, the people show up and let folks know, actually, no, we want abortion to be protected in this country. We want the right to abortion. And so by the very nature of what happened, 
when states introduced legislation, we saw this in Ohio, there was just a simple bill that was introduced. It didn't actually go far. It got a lot of media attention, but the very nature that the bill was introduced, people were talking about it. It led the constituents and the people in Ohio to think that abortion was no longer legal in their state or they did not have access. And so what we have now is we have this FDA case that's coming in Texas. We have people talking about abortion, but rarely do we emphasize that actually in many states, we still have some access to abortion. You can get medication abortion mailed to you in some states. And so all of this has kind of led us to think that, wait, hold on, what is actually available in my state? There are websites, there are resources. I always encourage people to check out abortion funds that are the practical support organizations that are helping people get their abortion, whether it's to pay for it, whether it's to provide transportation. But there are organizations that are committed to kind of unpack the confusion around what is actually available in your state. The unfortunate part of all of this is it's the people who are most in need that's not going to get that information. Folks who are struggling to make ends meet, immigrants, young people who can't afford to travel to other states to get their abortion. And that's the part where we have to fix and we have to look at how policy and other solutions can support those individuals. Rep Richardson, you know, I'm listening to what Jennifer is saying in terms of those populations that will need it most. I'm thinking of, as she mentioned, immigrants, young people, those are the same populations that when there was a lot of fear about our immigration laws, right? Like nobody knew. And then there was also the fear of, can I trust this organization, you know, to provide, you know, the information that's necessary And so rather than reach out and put myself in harm's way, I'll just figure it out myself. Or I'm more susceptible to people who are are looking to exploit people, right, from a funding, an economic standpoint, right? So going to someone who's going to charge an exorbitant amount of money to going to someone who is preying on these populations. And I'm just thinking about women and young people and, you know, other, as we say, marginalized people being in that state of confusion, because if we're confused and we're involved in this space and, you know, I'm just going to be honest, I'm confused, (laughs) right? So I don't know in terms of, you know, what state and where, like where to go, like if I had to like, I don't know what to do. Right. And so just thinking about those populations and that fear, because it has happened in many different other issues, whether it was immigration, whether it's people are confused about the child tax credit and like, do I, like, is it still on whether a student loan, do I still pay it? Right. There's all of this confusion. And so what can we do to help dispel some of that confusion in our own neighborhoods and communities? Well, and I think you bring up an important question because the complexities around this and the challenges that are inherent in this work, the medical complex has not always treated black and brown bodies well. And today that legacy continues. And so understanding that basic distrust is also a complicating factor. Like my mom to this day has just a 
basic distrust of doctors and the medical system. And those are things that definitely linger and make it more complicated as well. And I think it's also important to like recognize that when we talk about abortion bans and restrictive laws and policies that are popping up in this patchwork quilt fashion, we have to also lift up the reality that abortion bans in states do not ban abortions for everyone. They ban abortions for people who don't have the means, the opportunity, or the knowledge to understand how to navigate a more complicated system. And so one of the basic things that I think has been really helpful within the context of this manufactured confusion that we are talking about is the creation of more abortion navigators across the U.S. that are there as a resource to people and families as they they're trying to navigate these situations. And so that could be anything from helping someone fill up their car with gasoline, helping to get a flight for them, and also being able to provide them with information on here's a state that you can go to and that you will be able to get help. But even with that work, I think it's important to understand because when we're talking about how complicated it is for all of us to navigate what's happening in this legislature, what's happening in this court. We know it's going to be more confusing for people who aren't doing this work every single day. And so it's a real investment in those resources that's going to be critical. Yeah. Can I say one thing? I'm sorry. Sure. There's one other piece that I think we need to name is the threat of criminalization when it comes to managing your own abortion, right? Because we've already seen it play out in various states. We know that Black folks are going to be at more at risk. We've seen it happen in, in drug policies. We know that Black people serve longer sentences, have harsher punishments. And so it would be disingenuous of us to think that it's not going to or it won't happen for the ways that we use medication abortion and what our landscape looks like now. And so I just want to name the real risks that people are taking, both helping people seek their abortion and those who are actually managing their abortion on their own as well. Thank you for that. Rep. Summers, I want for a moment, and any of you can chime in as well, you know, because I come from a particular section of the Black community where in which if you're talking about access to abortion in terms of my reproductive rights, you know, I may not believe for myself in using abortion as part of my reproductive health care, right? You know, I wouldn't do it myself. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, you know, if somebody asked me one-on-one, -on -one, like we think of, you know, other ways, but if that's what you chose, I can navigate and help you go from there. And a number of people use that, right? Like that, that position in our community, in Black communities who are, quote, against abortion as a crutch, right? As a way to say, well, all Black people don't even believe in, but there's a connection. While I may not want to like personally have one, right? I understand that it is, there is a connection there to my overall reproductive health that I might have to make that choice. I personally had to, but it, you know, in my past, but I might have to make that choice, but the choice should reside with me, my family, my doctor, sort of all of that. How long or short is the slippery slope of being able to cherry pick things like 
access to abortion or IVF or different things like that, that needs to be where the government needs to have a voice in. And I guess it's like takes away like, like overall my reproductive health. Like for, for me, let, let me just <laughs> make it a little bit more cleaner. So for me, right. Government should not be involved in any of these discussions regarding my reproductive health. Right. I get to choose who's included in that room and in that conversation. And so therefore you should not restrict any access besides creating standards that keep everybody safe and healthy, right? Like government should not be included in this conversation, whether I agree with having an abortion or not, right? That's, that's separate. So how do these restrictions, whether it's access to abortion, the pills we use or things of that, how is it connected to the overall issue of reproductive rights, right? Because it's not just abortion access. There's other things connected to that. Or maybe, I don't know, Representative Summers or Jennifer, like who wants to jump in? Because y'all are all looking at me like, <laughs> like I mean, the double you, Dutch rope. <laughs> I mean, you are speaking so many truth points on this. You know, let me just take a stab at the first piece of it, which is this division that seems to be created within the black community, because, you know, I have to be honest with you, we are in the Bible Belt down here in Mississippi. And a lot of times the institution, the religious institution is used in a way to continue the narrative and the messaging around why abortion is wrong. And as you said, you know, everyone has their own personal opinions or beliefs about access to abortion, but that doesn't mean that the government should come in and then tell you and control you and determine the decisions for you that you think are best for yourself, your body, your family. So that is a real thing and that continues to be a part of the conversation. And then you asked about, you know, how long is the slippery slope? Joy, this slippery slope is so long. It's from Jackson, Mississippi, all the way to where Rep. Richardson is in Minnesota and probably further around the world, right? Because we know that what happens in the United States also reverberates around the globe. And particularly what happens to the most vulnerable of us can set precedent and can put structures in place that make other systems even worse, right? So when we talk about access to abortion or we talk about access to medication for our own health care, we're putting our own health care at risk, which means that we're putting people at risk. When you put people at risk, you're putting the whole state at risk because now you're impacting your workforce, you're impacting your economy, you're impacting all the systems that play a role in your everyday life. And so we have to be very careful not to fall for the okie doke not to get caught up in a historical playbook that has continued to put Black people, Black women on the chopping block. We need to stop this whole traditional historical system of putting us up on a stage and determining how much we're valued and how much we are worth. We are human. And as you said, the decision to have an abortion or not should be between yourself, your family, your God, and those in your doctor and the individuals that you trust and that you care will help you make the decision for your life. It should not be placed in lawmakers' hands, many of whom do not come from our community, that don't look like us, 
and quite frankly, don't value the majority of the people that we represent. And so we have to make sure that we are taking advantage of getting truthful information, factual information, and also, you know, Folks like Rep. Representative Richardson, myself, have to make ourselves available to the community to know that we are accessible in helping them to get the resources that they need to make a very, very delicate decision for their lives. And I just want to add on to that, because what I think is so important and doesn't um, get talked about a lot, you know, to what Rep. Summers is saying about us being on the chopping block. When we see the maternal mortality rates in this country, and we know that they are entirely preventable, entirely preventable. And as a nation, we have not done the work to prevent these deaths that we can. And to layer on top of this control abortion bans with a recognition that states that have abortion bans have the highest maternal mortality rates within this nation, it's important for people to understand how the full range of reproductive health care links together. And what also is known is as restrictions start to come into play, you also lose access to hospitals and clinics who start to make these sort of like risk guesses. It's like, hey, we're risk adverse. There's an Idaho a clinic that's closing now, a hospital that's closing. They're just like, it is too risky for us to provide abortion care and understanding how that was going to impact the bottom line. It was also about understanding about like, well, we're not going to provide any of this care because we're losing our providers because they're afraid to practice in a state where they are unsure of whether they're going to be prosecuted, whether they're going to lose their license. And so understanding that these decisions that states are making are connected with access to healthcare, and particularly in states that already don't have enough access and that the fact that they're losing access and then you are seeing these disparities that can be prevented becoming even worse. And yeah. can, can I, if I can, can I just put some data to what my colleague just said? Sure. We had a, a, a report come out from the Mississippi Maternal Mortality Review Committee, and there was an interview done with the public health dean from Harvard, and she put it in context this way. She said Black women in Mississippi are nearly 20 times more likely to die from complications of pregnancy or childbirth than women in Greece, Poland, or Turkey. Just three years ago, we were at 51.9 per 100,000 live births. It's getting worse. We are now over 60. So what Representative Richardson is talking about is a really real thing. We're talking about women's lives. Women are dying as a result of policies that we're putting into place and our efforts through the overturning of Roe v. Wade to take away a woman's right to access abortion. Mm. Yeah. Jennifer, that makes me think just before we take a break in thinking about access to reproductive health care overall, right? This, this is just basic health care for women, 
right? <laughs> this is our, you know, basic healthcare. I think about like here in New York, where there is a dearth of the amount of OBGYNs, right? Because insurance is high, you know, for them. And I think about how that plays out in other states, right? As Representative Richardson is talking about how hospitals are closing, providers are, you know, not sure what the law is, so I'm not going to provide this, or I'm just maybe going to (laughs) retire, you know, or sort of not practice in that field at all. You know, are we creating this situation where it's going to be more difficult to actually find a doctor just for your basic reproductive health care, not even talking about access to abortion? I mean, I think so, right? I I think, what is it, only about 11% of OBGYNs are African-American in this country. And so what has happened is we've taken the ability for providers to actually provide care and we put it back into the hands of politicians who are really set on restricting care. And so what we have set up is this way of, we have a lack of providers who are, you're less likely to have a provider that looks like you, you're less likely to be trusted, right? We've already seen the, the data around black women when they they name that they have a problem, there's an issue going on and whether or not they are believed, right? And whether or not they can build a relationship with the provider. And so all of these things have devastating impacts on health and your health outcome and your health overall health well-being. I am ugh, okay, I'm blowing through this break because <laughs> the next question I have, right, is what is what is it that we should be demanding? What is the call? What is the, you know, we we know this has been challenged. The Supreme Court took a side. Like, what is the future of reproductive rights? What are we, you know, advocating for? What is the call of arms? Like, what are we telling people that we need to have encoded into law, into policy or what have you, in order to protect our right to reproductive health care? You know, it's such a good question. And I think it's also a recognition that it's not just one thing. And it's a recognition that it has taken us centuries to get to this point. And one law, one policy change is not going to undo all of the the known disparities that we have. And so it's really taking, I think, a nuanced approach to thinking large scale about creating ongoing infrastructure that is directed at making change. And so like here in in Minnesota, one of the things that we did recently was the Protect Reproductive Options Act, and we call it the PRO Act. And what the PRO Act did is ensure that there is a fundamental right to not only birth control, the right to carry a pregnancy to term, the right to have, you know, fertility treatments and the right to abortion care and codifying that into state statute, which I think is an important baseline. We also were successful in getting the Dignity and Pregnancy and Childbirth Act passed that requires hospitals and freestanding birth clinics to have all of their obstetric staff trained on an annual basis in anti-racism training and also understanding that the system design that we have and the fact that 
our systems are working just the way that they were designed to work. So when we talk about these disparities, like when Rep Summers talks about the disparities in, in Mississippi or here in Minnesota, where we are less than 13% of the population, but more than 23% of the maternal mortality deaths within the state, which is an overrepresentation for us, it's a sign that our systems are working just the way that they were designed. And we have to disrupt those systems if we're going to do something different. And that also includes, like we did work to expand access to postnatal care. After you give birth, one of the most vulnerable things that you can do to only get one visit it within six weeks. No, at base minimum here in Minnesota now, you get three visits and those are paid whether you are on a state insurance program or a private insurance program. And if you need more than three visits because of experiencing some severe complications or a morbidity event, all of those costs are covered. And so it's it's about ensuring that we are doing the work of looking at all the places where these disparities pop up and doing something about them. We have a bill that's moving through right now that would create a right through our patient bill of rights for pregnant patients to have a companion with them throughout all of their care, be it giving birth or prenatal visits, because this idea in this reality that we know that Black women are not being listened to or being heard when they are calling out for help with some deadly consequences, we need to look at this from every angle and work to address it. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back with more Sunday Civics. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are talking about reproductive justice, particularly on the state level. Representative Summers, you know, I, I have this this question for you because I am assuming that you are in an environment where you're dealing with colleagues, right, <laughs> in the legislature who don't see the, the, you know, reproductive rights in the way in which you do, in which your constituents may. And how are you navigating these conversations and debates with those who are just strict, like nothing, <laughs> you know, like there's no go. Like, how are you navigating these conversations? I'm still trying to figure it out myself. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> it is by the glory of God that we are maneuvering through this process. And it, and it is a process. And Rep. Richardson was absolutely right in saying that it is very nuanced and there are, you know, other issues that you can begin to elevate that also tackle this reproductive justice bucket. But in, in Mississippi, as you can imagine, it is a bit more difficult to have those conversations and to really push for progressive legislation. However, we were able to do something this session that came out as a result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The leadership here in both the House and Senate established a study committee. I was not a member of that study committee, but I was able to lobby the members on that committee with a guidebook of potential policies that they could look at that included a lot of data and a lot of policy solutions that would help to target different issues that are related to maternal health. One of those issues was postpartum coverage. In Mississippi, we had a postpartum coverage for 60 days. 
And just last week, we passed Senate Bill 2212, which extends postpartum coverage from 60 days to one year. That was a policy that's been advocated for for a number of years. The Senate has been passing that legislation and it has stalled in the House, I believe, for the past three sessions. And finally, the leadership came on board with many advocacy efforts from groups outside of the Capitol and women inside the Capitol and our, you know, our male colleagues as well that compelled them to say if there's anything that we're going to do to help women in the state of Mississippi, this is it. You know, this was the low hanging fruit. And now we can say that women will have that access to care. And when we talk about postpartum coverage for a year, you know, that's not just helping a new mother with a baby, but that's helping her with care around her psychological, her her mental care. That's helping her with cancer screenings. That's helping her with overall health health and well-being so that she can be a healthy mom for that baby. And hopefully we're looking forward to the data that comes out of that to impact the maternal mortality rate that we have in the state of Mississippi. We also passed legislation, the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act. We actually passed this uh, last session that says that pregnant women will no longer be shackled during birth and, and it included some other provisions in that bill as well. So we're taking an incremental way of attacking this issue around reproductive justice and making sure that our women are not being penalized. They're not being, you know, that we don't have punitive measures in place that keep them in an unsafe or dangerous space of giving birth, but also give them the access to the care that that we need. We know that there's a lot more that we have to do, and we just have to continue to build that pressure inside and outside of the Capitol to get our colleagues, because in Mississippi, we're in a supermajority Republican legislature. You know, they don't need us to pass anything. They don't need us to kill anything. And so we have to be very strategic in the way that we move around this issue to make sure that women have what they need. You know, Jennifer, I'm noticing a trend here. Anytime I talk to Black women about reproductive access or reproductive justice issues, even if I say we're talking about abortion access, the conversation is never solely about abortion access. Black women are always talking about reproductive justice in its totality, right? We're talking about preserving life, right? Whether that be for their soon-to-be-born child, the mother, the health of the family, the life of the family and caring for it afterwards. There is this holistic approach when Black women are carrying the conversation about reproductive rights. I wish that was more of the conversation on the national level, because anytime they, there is the conversation about reproductive access issues, abortion and the um, debate about abortion is at the center rather than, you know, this holistic conversation about women's bodies and our right to control what is happening. But particularly for Black women, it is also preserving my life and preserving the life of my children and my family because I want to have, like, I want to, and I'm making these choices, not because I'm in the club on Friday and, you know, like, and doing this on the next day, but because, this is a holistic approach to the healthcare and ultimately the life of these individuals, these human beings, these women. Why 
are we not centered in this conversation about reproductive rights? Because it seems that we have a more broader <laughs> and inclusive conversation about reproductive rights than when it's, you know, presented from another perspective. I mean, we are taught, we are centered when it comes to election years, right? Like they talk about what are the, the ways and, and the needs of, of black folks. I, I agree with you. I think, I think it is really important that when we talk about reproductive health and access, that it is so much broader than abortion. Yes, abortion is one way. We need to destigmatize abortion. We need to name, say the word abortion and be comfortable with that. Also note that the majority of people who have abortions already ha are parenting. And so we, we can name abortion and we can also talk about all of the other ways that pregnant people and parenting people need to thrive. What does it look like for healthy communities, safe schools, just our community environment? What does community care look like? How do we take care of one another? So I love the, the, the policies that we had put forth. I love that Rep Summers named the Medicaid expansion, uh, postpartum Medicaid coverage. We know that 33% of pregnancy-related deaths happen between the first week and one year postpartum, but also we need to be talking much broader, right? And see that this, our fight for reproductive autonomy is connected to how we, how our schools are set up, how our communities are set up, our, our rights to vote, all of these things are interconnected. And so when we, when we frame it both in the states and at the national level, we should be framing it as such. I often point to organizations like Sister Song and in our own voice, Black Women's Reproductive Justice Initiative that is really championing the fights, both at the state and national level and, and putting forth our issues from our voice, our perspective and really centering black women for the care that they need. Mm. Well, we all know the adage that if you focus on black communities, if you focus on black women, if you focus on black children, it actually has impact and ripple effect across a lot of different marginalized groups, historically marginalized groups in this country. And if we can have a holistic conversation about reproductive rights, you know, maybe we can actually improve a part of our healthcare system, <laughs> you know, because Rev Richardson, you're talking about, you know, in the state of Minnesota, sort of adding, you know, the number of visits and cares. And, you know, you began the conversation, our conversation together, talking about the disparity that your people have passed down about you know, having a midwife versus going to a, quote, formalized medical institution and the horrific experiences, right? So there is an opportunity to also remake how, what the systems are, what our reproductive health systems are, right? How does health insurance interact? How do we recruit, retain, and make sure that we have equity in the service providers, right? All of that is an opportunity for us to remake that in a way that is more inclusive, more equitable, and also preserves, <laughs> you know, the lives that people want to have, right? And the choices that people want to have. But it's a false choice if you're restrictive and saying that you can make every choice except for that one. <laughs> like, you make all of the choices, just not that one <laughs> that might actually, you know, save your life. But, you know, we're just we're just going to take that off the table. Make, make the other choices, though. It's not and it's not going to stop with abortion. Right. Like we've already right. know this. Right. Yeah. So it, it starts. It started with abortion. 
it's not going to stop there. Yeah. Well, I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to engage in this conversation. You know, we've talked about it on Sunday Civics a number of times because I really do think it's important. And as you mentioned, it's not going to stop. Right. Like, you know, it's the continued chipping away. You know, I think about just the right to your own labor. Right. And and, and how that is connected. You know, that also becomes connected as well. That's for another show. But like the right, you know, the right for, you know, for that as well. So these are really important conversations. And, you know, it's difficult when people rep summers, as you mentioned, people pull on the heartstrings of your religion and your background and how you were raised and use that as tools to restrict people. We know that is centuries of the making. So that ain't going to change anytime soon. But I want to thank each and every one of you for taking an opportunity to have this conversation at the front of the class. And hopefully, you know, we can come back and talk more about what are some ways um, and some asks that people can make in individual states as things are passing through state legislatures. And then ultimately, how do we codify and preserve rights on the federal level? Have a great one.